Well, if you would open up uh, now to Titus chapter 2. Give you a second to uh, turn there because I want to ask you to do something as we start this morning. Uh, Once you get there in Titus chapter 2, maybe you want to set your Bible there in your lap uh, for a moment. And then I just want to ask you to do something with your arms. Uh, I want you just to cross your arms uh, really quick. If you don't mind, put your Bible down. Just cross them. Hold them there for a second. Uh, I'm guessing that however you're sitting there right now with your arms crossed, that's the exact same way you've been doing it for decades. Some of you, you've been doing it that way for seven years. Others of you, you've literally crossed your arms the same way for 60 plus years. Um, Why don't you just try and do it the other way and switch it around? That feels really awkward. And really, some of you are like, "Um, I don't even, I can't even figure this out. It's not natural, is it? Why don't you take your hands now and just fold them? Again, another everyday thing that you might do, you fold your hands, okay, now switch it. It's really awkward. It's really unnatural. The unnatural nature of what I just asked you to do, I I think in in some ways, uh, might be similar to what you experience when you become a Christian. Because the Bible explains to us that we're actually born sinners. So basically from day one, even before we're born, uh, God describes basically we are a sinful people by birth, by nature. We're born sinners. Sin is naturally, natural. It comes naturally to us. And so all of a sudden, when Christ comes and he saves you and he makes you a new creature, yes, you're new. Old things have passed away and new things have come. But you still have this whole life of doing things a certain way. And it's natural. And it, it can be tricky and even hard to all of a sudden, okay, now I'm this new creature in Christ and I need to start living different. It's hard to change to look like Jesus. Some things may come easy and some things may be quite challenging. Titus 2, 1 to 10 explains what godliness looks like for six different groups of people. And over the last several weeks, we've looked at those. Uh, We began with older men and then younger men. And then we looked at older women, younger women. And then uh, we also looked at uh, ministry workers and managed workers, or specifically in this text, slaves. And you fit, I'm sure, into one of those categories, maybe a couple of them. And maybe during those messages you thought, you know what, this is really great stuff. I want to be the type of person described there in Titus 2. I want to be that godly older woman. I want to be that self-controlled young man. I want to be this young woman that this text talks about. I mean, I heard those messages and everything inside of me said, yes, that's who I need to be. Yes, that's who God wants me to be. And yet the struggle is so real to actually become that person because you were born a sinner. There's all these things inside of you that, that still want to fight and resist those things. It doesn't just happen naturally. It's like, yeah, I want to be godly today. Boom, I am. Though you probably want to be the type of person described, becoming that person might feel like a losing battle. And so we ask, how do you actually become that person? How do you become that dignified older man? How do you become the employee that God wants you to be? How do you actually become what God describes? And there's really only one thing that's going to get you there. And it comes up in this next paragraph, and it's called grace. Surprisingly, we we may have thought something else might help get us there. 
We may have thought all of different, different kinds of things that you could do to help you become godly. And the thing that God points out in this text is called grace. Everything about God's grace demands godly living. Who would have thought? Look with me at Titus chapter 2. I want to read verses 11 to 15. <clears throat> Paul explains, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Uh, we're going to look this morning at five notes about God's grace. First note, God's grace is here. Look back at verse 11. It says, the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared. This verse talks about God's grace and it expresses that it's here. That the grace of God has arrived, that it's come, that it's shown up. We often refer to God's grace very simply as his undeserved favor towards us. That God has shown us his favor and it's something that we do not in any way, shape, or form deserve. This verse explains that God's grace or undeserved favor has appeared with the result that, that it's brought salvation. In other words... Deliverance from sin, deliverance from God's wrath, deliverance from eternity and hell has come. And it's something that a person, the Bible is very clear, gets by grace. Apart from human effort. And according to this verse, this saving grace of God is visible. And the whole text is going to be built on that reality. Verse 11 says that the grace of God has appeared. The, the implications of that would be that God's grace has actually always been, and now we can see it. What do you mean it's always been? Let me just read for you 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want to read verses 9 to 10. And as I read these verses, why don't you see if you can figure out when God's uh, saving grace, uh, how long it's actually been around for. And when and how it actually appeared in time and history. So let me just read this text for you. You try to think of, okay, uh, how long has it been around? And when and how did it show up? 2 Timothy 1, 9-10. It says of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Isn't that awesome? Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So now the subject is Grace. It says of this grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, according to this text, God gave his grace before the ages began. Think about that for a moment. What an incredible reality and thought that is. God gave us his grace before the ages began and now he's revealed. We might even say that he's unveiled that grace for all of us to see how. 
through the appearing of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to earth. We just back up and think about what happened. That Jesus Christ was in heaven with God the Father. the, The triune God together in the heavenly realm. And Jesus Christ stepped down from all of that. He humbled himself as Philippians chapter 2 talks about. And he came to earth as a man. Lived in perfect righteousness. Died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath. He was buried and three days later he rose from the grave. And then ultimately ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Doing all that to save you from your sins and from the wrath of God. We might say that's the appearing of God's grace. It's come. We can see it. It's been manifested. It's been revealed. Just a a very simple point I'd like to highlight about that. God has not hidden the the, the way of salvation from you. There are a lot of people looking and trying to figure out, well, how can I be saved? How can I be right with God? How can I be on my way to heaven? And the very clear teaching of Scripture is that God's not hiding. He's not trying to to conceal that way or make it really hard for people to know and find out. God longs for people to know. And he's tried to express it in, in, in very clear terms. And he sent Jesus Christ to make that way of salvation clear. That salvation and God's grace and eternal life, it does not come by works. It comes through Jesus. Look at what he did for you on the cross. God has revealed the way of salvation because he wants you to know and experience. He he wants you to realize that Jesus died for you. That he satisfied God's wrath on the cross for you. And he simply asks you to repent and believe. And so that he would be your Lord and your Savior and your Master. To repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. This text also makes clear, though, who Jesus died for. Who did did Jesus appear for and manifest his grace for? God's saving grace is available. It's available for you. It's available for me. Verse 11 continues uh, that this grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What that means is that God's grace is universally available without exception. You may think of yourself as too sinful for God to save. Some people look at themselves and go, I'm pretty good. I don't need saving. I'm a pretty moral person. I do a lot of good needs. Like, I do not need God to save me. I'll save myself. Well, first of all, that's wrong. But others of you, you you, you come to the Bible, you hear this message about God saving people, and you actually think, I don't know that that could be me. My past is really bad. It's really ugly. I don't really want people to know about it. Well, here's the thing. You may think that you're too sinful for God to save you. But grace is not grace unless it's undeserved. That is, that is grace. It is undeserved. And if there's, there's not someone undeserving, then how could there be grace? Jesus died to save you. God's grace is for you. And if you you are a Christian, don't forget that. You are not deserving of of God's saving grace. You deserve eternal salvation. You do not deserve eternal salvation. What you deserve is the very opposite of that. No matter how uh, moral of a family you grew up in. No matter how uh, distanced from maybe really obvious blatant sins your life might be. The Bible says we are born sinners. It's who we are by nature. 
Don't forget what you deserve. It's interesting. Paul is writing to Christians. Why is he writing to Christians about God's saving grace? Don't they already know it? Haven't they already experienced it? And maybe they think back, and by the way, these are probably a lot of new believers, and maybe they think back, yeah, that happened six months ago. Six months ago, I, I, I saw, God opened my eyes to the grace of God, and I repented of my sins, and I cried out, and I asked God to save me, and I'm trusting in Jesus. Why are you telling me about the grace of God? I know it, I believe it, I've experienced it. Because God's saving grace is foundational. It's foundational to the entirety of the Christian life. And what Paul's about to explain is that, that this whole life that we're supposed to be living, it's undergirded by the saving grace of God. Everything he talked about in verses 1 to 10, you want to live that way? That whole life is built on the saving grace of God. After telling six types of people how to live in verses 1 to 10, Paul begins verse 11 with the word for. He's connecting this text back to the previous one. And the argument goes something like this. Living this way, being this godly older man or this godly younger woman. Living that way. Live that way because the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. Live that way on the basis of that. The gospel of the grace of God is the basis or foundation for Christian living. It's grace that motivates behavior. There are a lot of things that the Bible tells us motivate uh, godly living or what we might call growth in godliness. The, the technical term being sanctification. Grace is not the only thing. But it is front and it is central. And I, It's something I think a lot of Christians don't gather. They or, or glean, they realize, well, I'm saved by grace, and then they try to grow in godliness by law. And this text explains the way that I grow. It's actually all tied to that grace as well. Uh, it's grace that motivates behavior. It's so important to grasp. Maybe, maybe I could explain it this way. My wife and I, uh, this last week, we snuck away to Banff for just a couple of days and I'll never forget, just as we were driving to the mountains, it reminded me of the very first time I saw the Canadian Rockies. I actually grew up in just flat farmland. Corn and beans, hot like it is right now in the summer, just corn and beans, flat everywhere. And uh, I don't even think I had seen mountains until I was like 18 years old, and they, they weren't like the Canadian Rockies. They're, they're more hills. And so the first time I actually did see the Rockies, I was just like, Whoa, I mean, you know how it is when you start driving into the mountains and you start to see them and you're around the corner and it's just like, boom, there it all is. I mean, I was just in awe. I had my phone out, I'm taking pictures and I'm like, I just can't quite take it all in. This is incredible. And I was reminded of that as we drove back to Banff this last week. Um, and uh, just thinking back to that first time, how I was blown away by the splendor, awe and glory of the mountains. But here's what happens. I, I've lived by the Canadian Rockies for several years now. I've gone back several times. And something happens, doesn't it? When you live near the mountains, they can actually become somewhat customary to you after a while. I mean, maybe you never quite get over them. You still think they're awesome. You still want to go there. But that first experience and your experience every time after is a little bit different. And what's so glorious and grand can become customary. When we were there in Banff this last week, I actually caught myself two times while we were there. I noticed myself very unaware of my surroundings. 
very unaware of the grandeur and glory of the mountains. We were right there on the streets of Banff. And one day it dawned on me, like, there are literally mountains right here, and I'm not looking at any of them. And, and the reason was, everything was covered by clouds. It was an overcast day. But then probably, probably what really struck me, at one point we were going up and down the shops and the stores, and my wife had gone into one store, and I was outside with the stroller, and I actually found myself on my phone. I don't even, I was maybe, I think I was scrolling through a news feed or something like that. And then it dawned on me, what am I doing? I'm, I'm standing here literally in the middle of the mountains in all of their glory and splendor. And I'm literally like this. And I mean, so was everybody else. But what, like, what is going on? Standing in the middle of grandeur and glory, I saw none of it. Have you forgotten that the first time you saw the grace of the gospel in the person and work of Jesus Christ? I mean, if you trusted Christ as your Savior, that happened. That, that moment that you first believed in God, as it were, opened your eyes. He unveiled your eyes to see the grace of Jesus Christ. And it just overtook you. One of the great dangers of the Christian life is that the grace of the gospel would actually become customary to you. And that's exactly what happens. And surrounded by the mountains of God's grace, somehow you don't see it anymore. And I, I think what's, what's coming as Paul relays this message to Titus and the people of Crete is your whole Christian life is built and your whole growth and godliness is built on you perpetually and constantly gazing at the mountains of God's grace. And if you cease to do that and if you stop doing that, you're not going to grow. If you lose the, the awe of the gospel and the awe of God's grace and it no longer is touching and warming your heart, you're probably just going to stagnate as a Christian. God's grace is here and it demands godly living. Have you lost sight of the grace of God somewhere? Something happens when you behold God's grace. You learn how to do something that you would never otherwise learn. Which takes us to a second note about God's grace. God's grace is instructive. Verse 12 speaks of God's saving grace training us. God's saving grace teaches you to live for Jesus. Uh, living for Jesus involves learning to say no to some things and then saying yes to other things. God's saving grace teaches you to say no. Look at verse 12. It says of this grace that it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The gospel teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, it teaches you to say no to sin. We could dive into to those negative words of um, ungodliness and worldly passions, but I actually think Paul's just very much summarizing the negative things that he warned against in the previous text. That older women, you could be this way. Younger women, you could be this way. Younger men, you could lack self-control. And he's saying the gospel teaches us to renounce all of those things. What causes you to say no to sin? Grace. Grace teaches you to renounce those things. When you behold the glorious mountains of God's saving grace, you are taught something. You are taught to consciously, willfully repudiate sin. 
and say no to it. Grace causes you to say, why would I want to sin in the face of Jesus Christ who saved me by his grace, who graciously died to save me from my sin? You know, often when we're sinning, what's going on? We're not thinking about the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made and how sinful and unworthy we are of that and undeserving of that. that that's somewhere way, way, way back in the rearview mirror. But when you behold God and his grace, all of a sudden you go, no. In light of what I'm looking at, this, this glorious mountain of the grace of God, how could I do that? But if you turn away from that mountain, you'll, yeah, I'll take my sin. The gospel the, the, of God's grace teaches you to say no. And on the flip side of that, God's saving grace teaches you to say yes. Look at verse 12 again. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And now on the positive side, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Again, those terms, I think, just summarizing all the positive elements in verses 1 to 10. Grace teaches you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly, just as the first 10 verses describe. And the end of the, the verse there talks about living this way in the present age. And what's being highlighted, I think, is that the present age doesn't live this way. And so grace is teaching us to learn actually to swim upstream, even though it may be very countercultural and very different, to swim upstream in a downstream world. God's saving grace doesn't just teach you to, to live a life, though, that says no to certain things and, and say yes to other things. It also teaches you to do something else as well as you live. God's saving grace teaches you to look for Jesus. Look at verse 13. We live this way, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace teaches you to wait and to look for what this text calls the blessed or happy hope. What is that? We're waiting for this happy hope of ours. We'll keep reading. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Maybe I could put it this way. A taste of God's grace always creates a greater hunger to experience God's glory. When you taste grace, what you then begin to crave is glory. Or when you've tasted the grace of God's first appearing, it creates a longing for the glory of his second appearing, of his second coming. If, if you are truly a Christian, there will be something in you that cries out, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Something screaming inside of you, I want Jesus to return. I can't wait for that day. Your great, happy, joyous, blessed hope is not found anywhere here. It's not for the Christian who's experienced the grace of God. There's this longing for the life to come. There's this longing to behold Jesus face to face. All your hopes aren't wrapped up here. Your hope doesn't uh, consist somehow in your job or in your family or in the government or even after the whole last year and a half that we've experienced. It all might change now. Or anything else here. Your happy hope is the return of Jesus Christ to rule and reign when you will see him face to face. And if you have experienced grace, 
There will be a craving in you for the glory of the return of the king. And if that, that hunger is not there, that's a very scary thing. Because anyone who's experienced grace will be taught then to wait, to hope for the return of Jesus. Your happy hope is the return of Jesus to rule and reign. Interestingly, 1 John 3, 2-3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, speaking of Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Someday Jesus is going to return to rule and to reign in glory. And you'll behold him face to face. And this text says you'll be like him. And everyone who has this hope of Christ's return purifies himself. Growing up, my mom was uh, quite particular about the house being clean if someone was going to come over. I actually think maybe there have been a few cultural shifts over the last couple decades um, where maybe for my parents' generation, that was a pretty big deal. Now it's like, yeah, you know, whatever. Just come on over. My grandmother was even more that way. If, if there was going to be company or guests coming into our home, my grandmother was 10 times more concerned, even than my mother, that the house be perfect. I mean, everything be clean, everything be in its place. And it always was whenever someone came over. The arrival of a guest was motivation for cleaning things up. That's how it should be for Jesus. We don't know when he's coming. But we know that he's the one who saved us from our sins. And he is coming. He is going to return. He's coming soon. And, and this, the, the passage that I just read says those, those who have this hope that Jesus is coming, they purify themselves. We want to purify ourselves because we love Jesus and want to please him. And he's coming God's grace is instructive and it demands godly living. And so what you want to do is you want to spend time, if I could say it this way, in the school of grace, learning about all of its many subjects. There are so many aspects of God's grace and you want to meditate on them and you want to study them all so that you'll learn how to live. It's, it's, I find it interesting, the words that God chose in verse 11, he talks about grace appearing. And it's this language of something that is visible, that can be seen. And all of this learning and growing is tied actually to seeing something. We often don't grow because we're not seeing and looking at something. And I, I actually think there's this very simple uh, gospel reality that if you want to grow, it's, a lot of it's going to depend on where you're looking and what you're looking at and what you're meditating on and what you're studying. And if you can manage to keep your eyes on the grace of God and the gospel and live there and meditate on it and all of its, its, its aspects and intricacies and that those, those great theological realities warm your heart, it will change your battle with sin. And it will propel you towards greater godliness. Keep the gospel before your eyes. Why is it that we wait for Jesus though? Why is it that Jesus is so important? Because Jesus is everything to us. Third note about God's grace. God's grace is personal. When you think of God's grace, you might think of something uh, abstract. But it's anything but that. 
when verse 11 speaks of, of, of the grace of God's appearing, what's he actually talking about? He's talking about a person. It's talking about Jesus and what he did for you. God's great, saving grace is personal, and there's no way we can escape that. And it's wonderful. God's saving grace is a gift from one person to another person. Verse 14 speaks of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one that we're waiting for. And it says of him who gave himself for us. One person gave another person a gift. Jesus Christ gave you a gift. He gave you the gift of salvation, deliverance from the wrath of God and from your sin. It's the gift from one person to another person. And it's a gift of one, uh, the gift of one person actually in the place of another person. Jesus gave you a gift and we should ask, well, what gift did he give you? Verse 14 says he gave himself for you. This is intensely, intensely personal. Jesus is the gift. He is both the giver and the gift. He gave himself, his own life on the cross for your sins. Uh, verse 14 could actually be translated that he gave himself in the place of, or in the stead of you, in the stead of me. It's the language of substitution. You deserved the wrath of God. And you had all of that coming towards you. The wrath of God hanging over your head and pushing down on you. And waiting for all of that to be released throughout eternity on you. And Jesus Christ stepped in and he took it on the cross. God's saving grace is a gift that when received creates a relationship. Jesus did something to bring you into a relationship with him. He died to satisfy God's wrath and restore a relationship. Verse 14 explains that one of the reasons Jesus gave himself for us was to purify for himself a people. I want a people. My own people. Christians are God's treasured people who he purchased with a great price. It's intensely personal. God's grace is personal and therefore becomes a powerful motivator for godly living. You belong to Jesus Christ. That's what grace teaches. And if you lose sight of that relationship, you won't grow. You know, if you think about uh, people that give you things, sometimes you get personal gifts from a person. Other times you might get something from a large entity. For example, my wife and I, we were just looking, we, we logged into our bank account and we noticed we had got some type of government payment. I think it was for $200. I think it was from Alberta for our something child related. Well, sweet. I'll, I mean, I will take $200 anytime the government wants to give it to me. <laughs> but I don't feel this like, oh, thank you, government. Okay, I'm going to write you a thank you note and I'm going to live my life for you. The government's just kind of this abstract entity out there I don't feel these heartwarming ties to. But everything about what happens here is personal. The sacrifice that's made is enormous and it comes from one person to another and it's handed out as a, a gift that is life-changing. And when that happens, it's not this, well, this impersonal entity out there did something great for me that I kind of appreciate. No, a person did something for me. And his name is Jesus, and he died on the cross personally in my place to satisfy God's wrath that hung over me. 
This relationship motivates godly living. God's grace is personal. Fourth note about God's grace. God's grace is expensive and free. How is it both simultaneously? God's saving grace is free to you, but it came at a great cost to Jesus. God's saving grace really is free. Verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself for us. Emphasis on the word gave. He gave himself for us. Salvation is truly free to you. You know, God's not for sale. You can't buy God. You can't buy his favor. And most religious people around the world are trying to do that. Yeah, I'll I'll somehow pay for this with my good deeds or what I do, and I'll try to buy my way into God's favor. And the Bible just repeatedly says, no, you won't. God's favor is free. It's free and undeserved. Your good deeds aren't worth anything in the economy of heaven. Salvation is a gift from God. You take it by repenting and believing. You're right, God, I'm a sinner. I deserve your wrath. I I don't want my sin. Please forgive me. I see the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and I'm trusting in that. But we say, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? So what's the catch? Well, God's saving grace is actually quite expensive. Grace is not cheap, nor is it free. It comes at a great cost, just not to you. Verse 14 says that Jesus redeemed us. Again, the language of money and a price. Redeem means to free by paying a ransom price. What did it cost Jesus to redeem or save you? What was the price that had to be paid? Everything. The text says he gave what? He gave himself a reference to Jesus Christ coming to earth and dying on the cross to save you from your sins. He gave everything to buy you, to purchase his treasured people. God's grace is expensive and it's free. It demands godly living. And these are the type of elements that when we behold the the, the mountain of God's grace and we see the price, we see our unworthiness, we see that it's free, though undeserved, those things motivate godly living. Number five, fifth note about God's grace. God's grace is transformational. When God's grace saves and trains someone, they're never the same. Verse 14 explains two reasons that Jesus gave himself for you and for me. Why did he do it? Well, he did so to redeem us from something and to purify us for something else. God's saving grace redeems you from lawlessness. Verse 14 says that he died to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus died and therefore and thereby actually paid that ransom price to liberate you from all of your lawlessness. You used to be a breaker of God's laws through and through. And yet Jesus died to set you free from that bondage. God's saving grace redeems you from lawlessness. And then on the flip side of that, on the positive side, God's saving grace purifies you for good works. Look at verse 14. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus saved you from something and he saved you to something. He didn't just die to save you and pull you out of your sin to be in kind of this neutral territory where you're no longer in bondage 
and just some kind of lawbreaker of all of God's laws. God didn't save you to be neutral. God saved you actually to, to something very, very positive. He saved you and, and purified you so that you would be his people who are zealous, passionate about good works. That's what he saved you to, a life zealous of good deeds. Motivated not primarily actually by fear, but by what Jesus did for you. I look at what he, as I stand and gaze at this mountain of God's grace, I realize I have a debt I could never pay. God handed me something free that no matter what I did, I, I could never return the favor. There is nothing I can do to earn God's favor. This is free and undeserved, just given to me. And on that basis, I do want to turn around and say, God, I want to give you everything. I want to live my life in a way that elevates your glory and puts you on display in front of other people. I want to be zealous for your mission and zealous for the gospel and, and zealous to live the type of life described in verses 1 to 10. God saved you to be zealous for good deeds. If you planted a garden or flowers this year, you know that whatever you planted needs something, doesn't it, to grow. Um, if, if your flowers or plants this week get nothing but sunshine it, and, and that happens for a week or two, it, it might not end well for your plants. They also need water. And if, if your plants get nothing but water and no sun and never gets hot, they're probably not going to do very well. When we ask, what does the Christian need to grow? Well, we can highlight a few basic things. But based on this text, what's the sun and the water for Christian growth and godly living? Well, the one thing that's highlighted here, we could call it maybe the rays of God's grace beating down on you and warming your soul. If that's not happening, if you're not living in the light and the rays of God's grace and, and living and beholding that and in all of it, you're probably going to be a plant that doesn't grow very much. But if you, if you will keep this good news of the gospel in front of you, if you will study it and you will, you will be in God's word, meditating on the gospel and pondering it and just looking at it and beholding it in all of its glory, God will warm your heart. And that will motivate you to put your sin away and live your life zealous of good, good works. God's grace is transformational. Everything about God's grace demands godly living and motivates that. Would you bow with me? And why don't we pray and just ask that God's grace would continue to change us.